0: When we look out at the universe, what we tend to see are the brightest, most easy to spot objects that are out there. With your naked eye, you can see thousands of stars, the plane of the Milky Way, and even the closest, brightest galaxies to our own. But when we look at the universe with better eyes, with improved tools and techniques, we find that most of the objects that are out there in the universe are below the limits of what we can see. The universe, isn't just filled with these bright, blazing stars, but also with ultra-faint ones, including with many, many objects that are too faint and too cool to even be seen with visible light telescopes. I'm not talking about the red dwarfs, which are still fusing hydrogen to helium in their cores. I'm talking about the failed stars that can't make it there, the brown dwarfs, the heavy exoplanets, And even lighter and less luminous exoplanets that are out there. Some of them may be interesting because they are some of the closest objects to us. Others are interesting because, for what's out there, there may even be hope for life very different from what we have on our own planet. What are we looking for and what are we finding at these faint frontiers in the universe? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. The quest to understand what's out there in the universe isn't limited to looking for things we know must be there because we exist and we're looking for things like us. Instead, many of the most fascinating objects and phenomena we see in the universe are completely different from us. They are things like brown dwarfs, like failed stars, like planets that didn't quite get massive enough to bring us across that nuclear fusion threshold. And here to tell us about their research, I'm so pleased to welcome PhD candidate Macy Houston of Penn State University. Macy studies exoplanets, brown dwarfs, and SETI, among other interests. And I'm so pleased to welcome them to the show. Macy, thank you for being my guest here.
1: Hi, I'm really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you here. So, you know, I would like to sort of ask, there's this dividing line, and I don't think about it as a hard dividing line. I think about it as a fuzzy line, that that you have, on one hand, objects that that are definitely not stars, right? No nuclear fusion is going on in them. They're more like Jupiters, or I guess if you want to get technical, maybe they're like super Jupiters, where they're more massive than Jupiter. But There's no nuclear fusion happening inside. Now, if Jupiter itself was something like around 80 times as massive as it happens to be, it could ignite nuclear fusion in its core, fuse hydrogen into helium, and become this red dwarf, this M-class star, the most common type of star in the universe. But there's this in-between thing that happens. It's like if you're more massive than Jupiter, massive enough that you can fuse not hydrogen into helium, but just some isotopes of hydrogen or some rare elements that exist in 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 a stellar core uh you can fuse them but you can't undergo the normal nuclear fusion chains of either the proton proton chain or the cno cycle so somewhere in between a big planet and a small star is this whole other class of objects that we generally call brown dwarfs what what makes something a brown dwarf and what goes on inside it that makes it so interesting?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question with a pretty complicated answer. Um, so there's kind of two different ways you can think about it and different people like to uh, you know use different methods here to actually define a brown dwarf. So there's kind of the most commonly uh, thought of way, which is that stars are these objects which fuse hydrogen in their cores. Um, like the sun and all the way down to things that are um, 0.08 times the mass of the sun. Now, when you get to masses lower than that, um, the next category is what we typically call brown dwarfs, and they will have a brief period after they form where they fuse some deuterium, which is a heavy isotope of hydrogen, in their cores, but that phase doesn't last very long, and after that, they just effectively look like really big planets. Um... And then so the limiting line for where you can burn deuterium like that, and that's um, what a lot of people consider the lower cutoff for what you define as a brown dwarf, happens at around 13 times the mass of Jupiter. And then once you go lower than that, that's generally what people would consider planets, specifically gas giant planets when you're talking about things a few times the size of Jupiter. But there's also kind of a different way you can define these things. so we still have stars in that category of objects that will burn hydrogen. Um, but then brown dwarfs, um, my advisor when I worked on a brown dwarf project, Kevin Lumen, liked to categorize these in a different way. And he would say, well, brown dwarfs are these low mass objects. They're not able to burn helium, but they form the way stars do as um, a collapse of gas in a molecular cloud. And then he would distinguish planets as objects that formed in the disk around a star when the star has already formed. And now with both of those mechanisms, you can get things above and below that deuterium burning line. So there's kind of some blurring there and some overlap in masses where, you know, under some definitions, something might be a brown dwarf. Under some other definitions, you might call it a planet. Um, so I think it's a really interesting idea. And I think thinking about these formation mechanisms is really interesting and important. But the problem is when you look at an object, it's way easier to figure out what its mass is rather than how it formed. So people usually refer to this mass method as a way to define them.
0: Yeah, I'm certainly a little more comfortable with using the mass method, mostly because um I'm aware of the tremendous uncertainties surrounding the population of what we call rogue planets that populate not only our galaxy, but the entire universe. Because a rogue planet is a planet that doesn't have a parent star. They're sometimes called orphan planets. But it's not clear to me or probably you or anyone, uh, where the majority of these rogue planets come from. Are they true orphans in the sense that, yeah, we started to form planets around stars and other stellar systems, and through the dynamics of gravitational interactions, uh, sometimes planets get ejected, and they wander the galaxy, and that's a population of rogue planets. These are these are populations that could be called uh, orphan planets because because they're literally ripped away from their parents, or ejected from their parents, and now, you know, their parents are indistinguishable from the hundreds of billions of other stars in the galaxy. On the other hand, you do have these failed star formation scenarios. And this is the part that isn't clear to me, is when you have a molecular cloud and you form stars, you also form a whole bunch of objects that aren't massive enough to become stars. Some of them will be brown dwarfs in the sense that they do fuse deuterium in the early stages. They do gather enough mass to be about 13 Jupiter masses or heavier, and they do reach core temperatures of, I think the threshold for deuterium fusion is around uh, 1 million Kelvin as opposed to the threshold for a proton-proton chain reaction, which is about 4 million Kelvin. Uh, But on the other hand, don't we also expect a large population of sub-brown dwarf objects, objects that don't have the mass and don't have the temperatures to reach that fusion threshold, that we fully expect to form in these star forming regions like i would think of these as like the stellar losers in the star formation rate like they just didn't go they didn't grow f- big enough fast enough to accrue enough matter to reach that fusion threshold or reach that mass or temperature threshold uh, before all of the gas in star-forming material was evaporated and boiled away from the stars that did get there first. So do you, do you have some insights on this? Can we, can we look at something and say, oh, there are this many sets of this type of planet, and this many sets of that type of planet, and this is the line between brown dwarf and not a brown dwarf? Or are we really stuck in, well, we have a story of what we think happens, but we really cannot say for sure uh, what population of substellar objects belongs to which class?
1: Um, Yeah, I would say this is definitely a very open area of research still. So there's a thing we call the initial mass function. And that's kind of what you're talking about, where when you've got these objects collapsing and forming in a molecular cloud what mass are they going to form at? are you going to like how many brown dwarfs are you going to get versus how many high mass stars and things like that so the initial mass function is a very big area of research it's something i've worked on a bit toward the low mass end Um, and the low mass end of that function is still a very open question because when you're looking for these low mass objects they're very dim and it's just really hard to find them um so like one of the open questions is, is there a lower limit to the initial mass function where this mechanism in molecular clouds won't form anything below some certain mass? And uh, we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, so I think it's a really interesting area of research that, um, especially when we talk about these searches for rogue planets, it's going to be really interesting to see how common they actually are.
0: That that is interesting. You know, when I think about this, I and I might be a little out of the loop here, I can really only think of two very good methods for detecting them. And one of them uh is something where you can just do an infrared survey of the sky because these objects like the brown dwarfs and even the massive planets, right? If if we could see infrared light the same way we see visible light, uh, Jupiter would appear to be a faint star to our eyes because Jupiter itself at its core is so hot that it emits infrared radiation by time it propagates to the surface. So if you could see infrared light, Jupiter would appear to be shining, not from reflected sunlight, but from its own energy that it generates. So if I do a deep enough, sensitive enough infrared survey, I could find not only brown dwarfs, but massive enough rogue planets that were large enough, massive enough, hot enough, and emitted their own infrared radiation. So I know that we found some rogue planets with Spitzer and Wise and other infrared observatories. And I know that they've been excellent tools similarly for finding and characterizing brown dwarf systems. But on the other hand, we would like to be able to see the objects that aren't hot enough to emit infrared radiation. And for that, uh, which we'll also get the ones that are, I know we can use microlensing as a technique that if you're a mass floating through the galaxy or anywhere in the foreground of another object and you happen to pass to transit in front of whatever our line of sight to another object is, uh, that's going to cause just a temporary micro-lensing effect which will magnify the light and cause a brightening and then will very quickly, just as quickly as it brightened, cause a de-brightening back to the original value. I know that microlensing studies are expected to skyrocket later this decade with the advent of new telescopes and new technology. But so far, uh, microlensing and you know direct infrared detection have really only yielded a few results in planetary and brown dwarf discovery. Um, are these two methods that you're excited about? And is there any other way to go about finding and characterizing these objects throughout the galaxy?
1: Um, Yes, these are definitely the two main methods. And I have had some experience with both of them. Um, So when we're talking about infrared detection of uh, brown dwarfs and planets, um, basically, those brown dwarfs and planets will still have to be pretty hot. So they will have to have formed recently and not had time to cool down yet. Um, So we can generally only find ones that are really young. And because they're still pretty dim, they'll have to be pretty close to us. The great thing about microlensing is that your brown dwarf or planet can be very old and very cool, as well as very distant. And you can still detect it if it happens to pass that closely in front of some sort of bright star in the background. and yeah, Roman, the uh, Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope coming up is very exciting for the field of rogue planets because its microlensing survey um, is going to point toward the galactic bulge. So it's going to be looking through an area of the galaxy that is very dense. There are a lot of stars there, a lot of brown dwarfs and, uh, and um, planets that we expect to find. And it's going to just observe an unprecedented number of micro-lensing events and advance the field so greatly. Um, and I know there's been a lot of work on how can we best optimize this in order to find as many rogue planets as we can and really nail down, like, what type of distribution of them do we have in the galaxy? Um, so that's really exciting toward the end of the decade. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm extremely excited about that. Uh Nancy Grace Roman for those of you listening, uh it used to be known as WFIRST as a wide field infrared survey telescope. So, uh this is going to do that, but it's not really super infrared. I think of it as like this is like Hubble, It is really like having another Hubble, except instead of with instruments from decades ago, and instead of being optimized for a narrow field of view, uh, it's going to have modern cameras, it's going to have modern instruments, and it's going to have an incredibly wide field of view. WFIRST, Nancy Grace Roman, should be able to go to about the same depth as Hubble, which is to say if you observe the same area of the sky for the same amount of time as Hubble, you'll be able to see objects about as faint, about as far, and at about the same resolution. The thing that makes Nancy Grace Roman so exciting is that its field of view is enormous. It will be able to see somewhere around 50 or 100 times the area of Hubble. So whereas we had to take Hubble observations all over the sky in order to stitch together a significant field of view, Nancy Grace Roman is one and done. If you want to take a wide area of the sky, you can go 50 to 100 times faster with Nancy Grace Roman as you can with Hubble, which means if it's staring at the galactic center, it can not only do what Hubble does except better, it can do basically what the Kepler mission did except better. You know, the Kepler mission, what was so spectacular about this planet-finding endeavor is you would stare at the same region of the sky, right? We would looking along a spiral arm in our galaxy, uh, so we could image about 100,000, 150,000 stars at once. Wide field view, get a bunch of stars. And if those stars happen to have a planet pass in front of them because it had a planet orbiting it that happened to be lined up that the planet would pass and obscure a portion of the star's disk, we could detect a transit event. And that dimming, if it occurred over and over again, we could say, oh, there's got to be a planet of this size and this period orbiting it. And that's how we began to find exoplanets with Kepler. The transit method and the NASA-Kepler mission has been the most prolific source of new exoplanets for us of all time so far. But when you're even farther away and you have more stars and you have a greater density of stars, you'll not only be able to get planets that transit around the star that they orbit, you'll be able to get all of the masses that are intervening between us and And the objects we're looking at if there are stellar systems with planets around them we'll be able to detect both the star and the planet through microlensing if there are free floating planets or rogue or orphan planets moving through the galaxy we'll be able to detect their gravitational effects as well as the gravitational effects of stars or brown dwarfs or anything else in there what's remarkable is even though i know how we're going to do it I don't know what we're going to find. And I'm a little curious to find out because there are some people who expect that there's going to be a big drop-off in the number density and populations of these objects. Some people fully expect that, oh yeah, like the number density of objects will peak where either red dwarfs are or right below where the more massive brown dwarfs are. Other people expect the number density of objects to just keep going up and up and up as we go to smaller and smaller masses. And I have no idea who's right. Is there anything that you could say that maybe hints at what the answer to that question is going to be?
1: Well, when we talk about things in terms of the initial mass function, and um, when we talk about planetary mass objects, which form like stars, uh, the evidence suggests that you get a lot less of these planetary mass objects than you do, like, M-dwarfs, kind of where that function peaks. But then there's the other mechanism for making these rogue planets, where they form in the disk around a star, and then they somehow get ejected from the system. And uh, as far as I know, we don't really have great estimates for how common that is. So it's still a very open question.
0: Yeah, one of the jokes that people used to tell about astronomy and cosmology is they used to joke that it was the only science where the errors are in the exponents. And when it comes to how many of these orphan planets are out there, how many of these rogue planets are out there, uh, this is a case where it's still true. I've seen Estimates of the numbers of them that vary by factors of like tens of thousands. That some people estimate, like, oh, maybe there are about 10 times as many planets free-floating throughout the galaxy as there are stars, you know, about as many planets as we estimate there are around stars. But other people estimate hundreds, thousands, or some even get close to a million times as many objects. And that's just mind-boggling to me that down at the low end of the mass function about, you know, okay, how many objects do you get of this heavy mass? How many objects of sun-like masses do you get? How many objects of a tenth of the mass of the sun do you get? You know, we we know that distribution, those mass functions pretty well for stars that we form today in the universe. But once you get below the threshold for the masses of stars, uh, I think it's safe to say that we just don't have good enough, comprehensive enough data to definitively answer that question. I think that Nancy Grace Roman is expected to help, but even that observatory with its remarkable upcoming capabilities, even that might need some additional assistance to really robustly and certainly provide an answer to that question. If, if I were going to look at what can I observe to to help the Nancy Grace Roman Observatory out? Uh, what would you look for? What would you like to see to make sure that we're not missing the important, you know, pieces of information that can provide a comprehensive answer to that?
1: So I think um, the best method, you know, for finding these sorts of objects, I really do think is microlensing, and I think the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope is going to dramatically increase our knowledge of what's going on in this mass range. But I also think an important part of this question is to learn more about planet formation and planet evolution over time. So studying the disks around stars as they form planets and understanding that process better, as well as understanding how things like stellar flybys affect the dynamics of these objects and can eject planets from the system, um, kind of explores another important side of this question.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Do you think there's any potential for the observatories that view the details of protoplanetary disks today, things like the ground-based infrared telescopes like uh, like the european southern Observatory's, uh i believe it's their uh, spherex instrument or even going to longer wavelengths things like the atacama large millimeter submillimeter array uh, alma which observes the details that we've seen in protoplanetary disks including gaps in protoplanetary disks do you think it would be feasible to turn these on other places in star forming regions places where there isn't something massive enough to be a proto star um do you think it's possible to look in there for maybe circumplanetary disks that would form against these substellar objects do you think we have any possibility of directly imaging those and and to actually detect hey are we forming planetary systems around these objects that are not only too low in mass to be stars, but maybe even too low in mass to ignite deuterium fusion, even in the early stages? Is that is that something we could do to help us along on our quest to understand what types of these objects form?
1: That's a really interesting question and honestly not an area of expertise for me. Um, I think you really come up against the brightness issues here again just because these small objects even when they've just formed they're not going to be very hot and when we're talking about a disc around a star or in this case a disc around a planet or a brown dwarf um that disc is going to be illuminated by the light from the star and if you don't have that coming off of a planet um i think it can be really challenging to actually be able to observe these things
0: I see, so are we just limited by the fact that we don't happen to live in a star-forming region right now, that that all of these places where we would look for objects like that, they're just too far away for us to see, even with the best current technology we have, that by the time the light gets to us, it's just way too faint to be seen, unless you have a strong source of energy like a star or a protostar or at least a brown dwarf in there
1: yeah i think that's probably the case um i don't actually have an absolute answer for you on that
0: no that's okay i mean we're we're all trying to puzzle out um you know I, i think in many cases in many ways that's kind of the beauty of this field right is none of us no matter how broad our knowledge of the field is none of us can be experts in all of it and so what we have to do is we have to you know take the expertise that we have and talk to other people who specialize in other instruments other wavelengths other types and classes of observations we we need to work with people and talk to people who have knowledge that we don't because none of us can know it all and you know unfortunately these big questions that we're trying to answer about you know what's out there in the universe and how do we know um we have lots of different ways of going about investigating these problems and not all of them uh you know give even overlapping information some of them give information uh about things that our own research or our own areas of investigations don't reveal. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, yeah, it's too bad you don't know it all, but also nobody does. And that's both a bug and a feature.
1: Yeah. A great thing about astronomy is that you never run out of things to learn. You can always find people around astronomy events who know really, really cool things that you've never even heard of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of things that Uh, you know about that many people have never even heard of. Uh, One of the ideas that to me was just a staple of science fiction was the idea of a Dyson sphere, right? To me, thinking about this from a scientific point of view, it was one of those things that I never understood. You know, if you've got all the energy from a star and from the external universe, why would you build this massive structure, this massive solid structure as an investment of resources to completely enclose the star? Um, And and capture all of its energy rather than just build an array of things in space. Uh, But the idea of a Dyson sphere has remained popular. And uh, you've actually, uh, I believe, as of just late last year, late in 2021, uh, you've actually published a paper about uh, signatures of Dyson spheres and how one would look for them. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that, both in terms of the motivation for searching for a Dyson sphere and also what we can learn by comparing the data we have with the signals we expect to see?
1: Um, Yeah, so when we think about Dyson spheres in fiction, for example, that episode of Star Trek, You often picture just one solid, monolithic shell that completely surrounds a star. But when we talk about actual astronomy research, that's not really something that would be physically stable. Um, You know, given any reasonable material to construct something like that, it would buckle under its own weight. It wouldn't um, necessarily have a way to stay centered around its star if any sort of disturbance happened. So we don't really consider the solid shell as something feasible but um, what we would consider um, as astronomers is something more like what you might call a Dyson Swarm which would be a large array of a bunch of big solar panels that all orbit around a star and probably don't cover 100% of it but collect some large fraction of the star's light.
0: So that's that's a little more feasible to me because that sort of thing, you know, one of the one of the things that's always struck me as odd is how difficult it is to predict the motion, the evolution of objects when there are more than two masses present. So, for example, uh, there are a whole bunch of simulations that you can run to ask what will happen to our solar system over time, you know, and yeah, you can say, well, I know how stellar evolution works and the sun is someday going to run out of hydrogen fuel in its core. And when it does, it will expand and the core will contract and it will swell and it'll eventually become a red giant and it will heat up and it will expand, and when it becomes a red giant, it will swallow Mercury, and it will swallow Venus, and depending on some factors we're not entirely sure of, it may or may not swallow the Earth. But what's interesting about those simulations to me is when you run them forward, about 1% of the time, uh, the inner solar system becomes so unstable just from Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars interacting with one another... Then in about 1% of simulations over the next 5 to 7 billion years, one or more of those planets gets ejected from the solar system. And when I think about Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, I think, wow, like these are some pretty stable orbits. And it turns out, no, they're, they're actually not. And so the notion that you'd be able to build something like a Dyson sphere and have that Dyson sphere actually be stable against all the perturbative gravitational forces acting on it, I mean, that just sounded like a non-starter to me um and what you're telling me is that oh yeah like that is a non-starter but if you just made a swarm of objects you wouldn't be subject to those same instabilities is that is that the general thought on on why we consider a swarm instead of a solid sphere
1: well there definitely are some concerns um along that line of thought even with a swarm for example if you've got um you know satellites orbiting at some angle with respect to the orbit of, say, a planet that's also orbiting the star, you might get some interesting interactions there. And that's actually an open area of research that we explored a little bit in a class I was in last year. And some of that work is still underway. But um, yeah, there are definitely stability concerns for any types of these structures. But in general, if you have these different, like smaller um, solar panels on individual orbits... That's something you can, you know, put a rocket on and have it adjust its orbit a little bit as needed. Whereas if you have one gigantic sphere surrounding a whole star, that's something that is really hard to just make slight alterations to its motion. That makes. Whereas sense. you know satellites, you can adjust them.
0: Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I would wonder though. Uh, you know, what sort of observations you'd make to detect the presence of a swarm. If I wanted to detect a Dyson sphere, that one seems pretty easy to me, because all you'd do is you'd say, okay, I know how stars emit light and energy, and I know if I encircle that star or completely enclose that star within a sphere of a given radius, I can calculate What temperature will that sphere radiate at? What will the energy spectrum that it gives off look like? And what will its size be? So I imagine that there's some sort of spectral signature you can look at for a Dyson sphere to say, okay, either we found them and there are these many of them within this distance of us, or we've placed constraints on them and there are none of them to this level of confidence within this distance of us. Uh, So that's pretty easy for me to envision how you detect it but a Dyson swarm sounds a little more problematic you know a few years ago there was this hullabaloo because there was this proposal that oh we have this star uh, that we call Tabby's star uh, discovered by uh, Tabby Boyajian who um, found this unusual star that has these bizarre and aperiodic flux dips in it where It's dimming much, much faster and much more irregularly than anything that could be explained by exoplanets. So someone put forth an idea that maybe these are alien megastructures, which seemed like a very far-fetched explanation to me. You know, I I always hate reaching for a fantastic explanation when maybe a more mundane one would do the job just as well. Uh, But this is actually, you know not a trivial thing to think about, and if you were thinking about, well, what if there is an energy collection swarm of satellites out there that are solar-powered, what sort of signature would they give off, and how would you be able to say, oh, I'm seeing this, and that's a strong indication of a Dyson swarm, and not any of these other confounding natural factors? What, What would you look for?
1: Yeah, so you've kind of mentioned the two main methods for looking for things like Dyson swarms. Um, so one of them is looking for really strange transit light curves that can't be explained just by planets. Um, you could have uh, a bunch of different satellites or some weird shaped satellites, um, like you might in a Dyson swarm, that could cause these weird light curves like we saw with Boyajian's Star. So um yeah, the Boyajian's Star, thing um, was really interesting for SETI researchers because you know they had been there had been papers before talking about what kind of transit curve you would see for different types of uh, technological satellites and so when this happened people got pretty excited about it because it was the first of these really bizarre transit events that had been seen but of course there are natural things that um, can cause weird dips like that we didn't uh, The astronomers working on this didn't immediately know what that explanation could be but there's always something right so the study explanation was put like at the end of a list of many different things that um, should be explored further as a possible mechanism for this sort of event Um, and I know there were some parts of the media that really ran away with the alien thing and my poor advisor Jason Wright had to deal with Uh, A lot of the fallout from that, because he was involved, and he is a SETI researcher, um, but he was not trying to claim that he had certainly found an alien megastructure. Um, But, you know, these odd transits are one of the types of things we look for, but you really have to look deeper than just weird transits before you want to make any claim about what that transiting material actually is. So, in the case of Tabby's star, the thing that actually determined um, these transit dips to be natural in cause is that when you observe the transits in different wavelengths of light, so say you're looking at some optical light that we would see with our eyes and you're looking at some infrared light, the the transits showed different depths, which means that whatever that material passing in front of the star is, it's not like a solid metal object like you might expect for a Dyson Swarm. It's something more dusty than that, where the shorter wavelengths of light are getting caught in that dust while the longer wavelengths of light are able to make it through. So that was the indication in that instance that it was in fact natural material. Um, So something we might look for when we're looking for technology in that situation is looking at the transit in different wavelengths of light and seeing if you get that same dip uh, in all of your light curves because that would indicate a more solid object like a satellite
0: yeah in fact what you're describing is actually the very same thing we see when we look at the center of the galaxy right if you look up at the milky way even with your naked eye on a on a dark night where you have clear skies uh you're not going to see oh my god it's so bright and look at all the stars everywhere like there are stars but they're not everywhere because All throughout the Milky Way, you have these dark patches, these dark nebulae, which are in fact dust lanes. These are lanes of neutral matter, neutral dusty atoms that exist throughout the galaxy. They are excellent at blocking visible light, and they're even better at blocking ultraviolet light. But they are lousy at blocking infrared light. So when we launch satellites and we view the universe, not invisible light, but in the infrared, we can see through that dust. That dust is lousy at blocking the light. And seeing that wavelength-dependent signature where something is better at blocking bluer light and worse at blocking redder light, that not only tells you, oh, you've got Dust, uh, which is a nice natural explanation, it can even be used to tell you properties like the average grain size of the dust. Because in general, if you are a wavelength of light, if an object is the same size or bigger than you, um, then you are going to do an excellent job of smacking into that object and having your wavelength, having your light absorbed by it. But if your wavelength of light is longer than the object you're considering, uh, it it won't. It won't make it through. And that's why um, when you look at your microwave oven, uh, you will see that there are these little holes, about millimeter-sized holes, in a grating on the door of your microwave. Because those holes are large enough that the light the visible light that's only a few hundred nanometers in wavelength can pass right through. But the microwave light, which is a few inches in wavelength, uh, can't. It gets reflected off of it. And that's why the inside of your microwave heats up, but you can see the light on in there and you can see what's cooking inside. I, I kind of view interstellar dust as exactly the same way, except we're not really as interested In uh, reflecting light and keeping it inside like we are with microwaves, we're really just interested in what gets absorbed versus what gets transmitted. And in that case, the longer wavelengths of light get transmitted more easily, and the shorter wavelengths of light get absorbed more easily. So yeah, what's happening around Tabby's star isn't the result of having a set of solid objects there. But if you took a look at stars and you did see a wavelength independent significant flux dip coming from that uh would that would that at last mean oh wow like this this is not any type of dust this actually is some sort of mega structure or or would there still be another natural explanation that didn't invoke some sort of intelligent aliens to do it? Or, no, that's it. If we see that, that's the smoking gun we're looking for.
1: Yeah, so it definitely, if you see uh, wavelength-independent um, transit depths, that's definitely a very interesting thing to follow up in terms of SETI. But we would still be very reluctant to jump to there's that it absolutely has to be aliens you know that's something we try to be very cautious about um so something we would probably do in that sort of situation is to try to look for other types of technosignatures or signs of technology around that star so we might look for things like radio emissions um because if we you know if we see these transit events that's very interesting but we don't want to jump to conclusions However, if we find some other indication of technology, well then we can say, all right, there has to be some sort of uh, life there that is creating these techno signatures.
0: I mean, that's sort of interesting too, but that that also gives me the uh, the fear of, I guess the best analogy I have is the old one about the drunk looking for their keys outside of the bar and it's dark. And the keys are obviously not under the street lamp, but the drunk keeps looking under the street lamp. And someone approaches him and says, hey, how come you're looking for your keys under the same street lamp over and over? And the drunk says, because that's where the light is. And I wonder if by looking for, you know, radio signatures, which, if we're being honest, uh, were stronger coming from Earth 50 years ago than they are today, um, you know, I I can imagine like, oh, like... Well, if you have an intelligent species of aliens who's more advanced than we are, why would we expect that they're using, you know, 20th century technology to communicate? Are we are we basically looking under the street lamp because that's where we know how to look and do you worry that we are missing the whatever it is the aliens are actually doing today in their advanced state because we're not advanced enough to know to look for it.
1: Yeah, that is absolutely something that we think about in SETI because you're right, when we talk about the radio transmissions, you know, it's like we don't we aren't just spewing them off as much anymore as you would have, you know, radio leakage from Earth right when radio was at its peak. Um, but there's still, you know, in SETI, we kind of maintain this idea that radio, as far as we know, is the, um, it's kind of the favored theory for a method of interstellar communication, because, uh, as we mentioned earlier, when you have really long wavelengths, uh, light, like radio waves, it's not going to get absorbed by things like dust. So these waves can travel really far. Additionally, they don't require large amounts of energy. So, you know, radio really is kind of what we see as the optical method for communication. Um, You know, even if you have more advanced technology, radio still seems like it would be worthwhile. But of course, there could always be things we don't know. Right?
0: I mean, that's that's the... uh... That's the fear, right, is that, you know, there there's something an alien civilization knows that we don't, um, and that's what they're using to communicate, and so we're making an assumption that, you know, they're going to communicate the way we've envisioned, like, okay, well, we know if we wanted to send a an intelligent signal the greatest distance for the lowest amount of energy, how would we do it? Um, and we can say like, yeah, well, we're going to use uh, we're going to use radio for all the reasons you just mentioned. But it's also possible that a more advanced civilization would say, oh, well, we're just going to generate this pulse neutrino signature, or we're going to generate this unique gravitational wave signature, or we're going to generate you know some sort of other signature that uh, that I haven't mentioned because maybe we don't even know about it. Um, And that's how we're going to communicate. And that's how we're going to be detectable. And we just don't know enough about the universe and about physics and astrophysics to be able to look for that today. I I know that's a big worry, but I also, uh, by stating that worry, I don't have any solutions to offer for what we should be doing instead.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that is a concern, but the truth is that you know if we're talking about technology we don't know about we don't know about it so there's no way for us to try to search for those things other than maybe just in general searching for anomalies there's kind of a method in study that's called just like anomaly detection where you look in any sort of astronomical data for anything that just doesn't make sense and then try to figure out well is there an actual cause or might this be something artificial but You know, it is really hard to look for things when you don't know what you're looking for. So often in SETI, we do focus on things we understand, like radio, just because it's something that we can do.
0: Yeah, and yet I I still worry about that, too, uh, because for me, one of the big things I worry about is, at least from a communication point of view, is I worry about the false positives and the announcements and the press furor that comes with it. And I I start to think the more and more it happens, and it's happened plenty over the last decade, uh, is that we're just running into like an Aesop's fable of the boy who cried wolf over and over again. That, you know, we'll hear like, oh, fast radio bursts are aliens. Like, no, no, actually those fast radio bursts of so- bursts are a microwave oven in the break room and there are real fast radio bursts but those are not aliens either uh, and then we'll hear like oh like we we have this star that's having these unusual flux dips maybe that's aliens and then we'll have oh we saw this interstellar object coming through the solar system maybe that's aliens and I, I worry that once someone makes the public claim or at least someone with non Vanishing credibility makes that public claim that maybe it's aliens, that that's all anyone ever talks about until someone comes out with the, no, here's the solution to the puzzle, and it's not aliens. And also, maybe you shouldn't jump to conclusions that it's aliens without having better evidence than that. Uh, so I don't really have a solution to offer to that. But I do see that as a as a potential pitfall of you know someday we might we might actually discover alien life alien intelligence an intelligent signal and will we even be able to believe it if we find it? Or will we confuse ourselves because we want to see it, right? Will will we play the most dangerous X-Files game there is where I want to believe has biased us so far that when we actually do detect it, we won't recognize it for what it is?
1: Yeah, that is definitely something we talk about a lot in SETI. I know this is something that um, Jill Tarter has worked on that's like, okay, when is the detection certain enough that you can tell the public? And then there's kind of another unfortunate side of this that happened recently, as you probably heard about, with the BLC1 um, incident where the Breakthrough Listen uh, group, which does a lot of radio observations looking for radio-technic signatures, um, they had a signal show up that looked like maybe, it could be, coming from Proxima Centauri, which is a nearby star.
0: It's the nearest
1: star. Yes. <laughs> um, so they had something interesting show up in their data where they were like, maybe there's a radio signal coming from that star. But they hadn't finished the analysis yet. There's a lot of work to do to make sure that that signal couldn't be something coming from Earth. Well, what happened is somehow... The information that something had been detected got leaked to the press before they finished that analysis. So even though they were doing all the right work, and they did figure out that actually the signal was coming from Earth, it was radio frequency interference from Earth-based technology, by that time, it had already been going around the press that maybe there are aliens on Proxima Centauri. Um, So it's a very difficult situation to handle even if you're trying to do it right. Sometimes it gets out before you've been able to do all
0: of that analysis yeah i i i did I did follow that and I was aware of that honestly it never occurred to me that there was a mystery over how it got out uh you know I just I know some of the big names associated with the breakthrough listen project and I just when I heard about that I made like a mental shortlist of about five people and I was like yep it was almost definitely one of them, almost definitely one of them couldn't keep their mouth shut. And I don't know who, but, uh, but, you know, maybe I should never chalk up to malice what can be attributed to incompetence. And so, um, you know, I don't know if you have opinions about that. I especially don't know if you have opinions that you're willing to go on the record about. Uh, but you know, I, I, I'm keenly aware that yeah like we are going to have likely many many more of these uh false alarms uh that that really should never have raised alarms in the first place happen before we detect something just Just like I believe the Phosphine on Venus announcement and that means life was premature just like I think the methane on Mars and that means life is premature just like I think like oh we're gonna find oxygen in an exoplanet's atmosphere and we will and when we do there will be speculations that that's life and that's premature. Uh, I think when we find an unusual radio thing to go to aliens is at best premature and is at worst uh, Uh, deliberately trying to, uh, drum up, you know, if I'm being cynical, uh, funding for an endeavor because, uh, you know, that's, that's what people are trying to do. And there, some of them are willing to do it at any cost. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you share that perspective or if I'm really being overly critical of some of the worst actors in the community.
1: I would say from my experience in the SETI community, we don't want false alarms because, you know, we want people to believe us when we do find something. And we don't like when these this news gets out that we found something when we actually haven't, you know. Um, that's definitely my experience with most of the community. Um, there are certainly some people, maybe specifically one person, who seems to be building a career out of making unfounded claims (laughs) um, that I would say come from um, the kinds of motivations you're talking about for, you know, fame and money. But in general, I would say that people like that lose their credibility. And the people who are serious and we want to be sure about something before we make any claims are the people who you know, really stick with this research and take it seriously.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's the best check and balance we have against that kind of behavior, is that there are responsible people out there conducting science as it's supposed to be done uh, who aren't in the game for headlines or notoriety or self-promotion or any uh, sort of vainglorious ends. Um, and I think that that community of of scrupulous researchers that we have is maybe the best check and balance we have against that sort of, uh, I'll just call it scientifically unethical behavior. Uh, but at the same time, I recognize, you know, it's often the loudest person in the room who gets the most attention, not the most correct person in the room whose voice is listened to. And, uh, you know, when I look at the claims that have resonated the most with the media, it, it isn't just the bad actors who are acting in bad faith who are responsible for that. It's people who make honest mistakes, who, you know, th- they're mistakes nonetheless, but these sort of high-profile gaffes, um, I think, you know, I, I worry that, you know, that, Every time now we hear an announcement about Hint of Life uh, that you have like two camps is one, you have the camp of people that always have and always will um, be very eager To believe it because they want it to be true and then you have everyone else who is maybe at this point in time and I can't believe these words are gonna come out of my mouth uh, but maybe are too skeptical and aren't open-minded enough to the possibilities because of all the times in the recent past that we've gotten burned by taking an unsubstantiated unsupported invalid claim seriously
1: Yeah, it's definitely a hard balance to try to strike there because, you know, we all think it's possible that there is life and technology out there when we work on this stuff. But we also know that, you know, not every weird thing you find is aliens. And especially, you know, when we're speaking to the public and to the media, it's so hard to find the right balance of this could be something really cool, but we don't know yet and we need to do a lot more work. So, definitely something we struggle with.
0: Yeah, but let's pretend that something good is coming down the pipeline. Um, You know, I, I know we've conducted pretty comprehensive searches of the parts of the sky we can access with the tools we have. And and so far, we don't have anything where we're like, okay, like, we're really, really optimistic that there is life or intelligent life out here uh, in this one spot. There are plenty of places where we're curious to look because, you know, we have planets that are suggestive of it. But what are some methods that we're using to look for possibly intelligent signals out there that that most of our listeners wouldn't know about? Are there any current searches for intelligence that you you are bullish on that you think, uh, you know, maybe sometime over, I don't know, the next 50 years or so, maybe we have a really good shot at detecting intelligent life through a specific method or through a specific procedure. Is there is there anything you're very excited about? Is there any potential detection opportunities that you'd like to bring to the attention of the greater world?
1: That's a really interesting question. Yeah, I don't think that I would really emphasize having one method that I think is the most likely to succeed, but I would love to talk about you know a few interesting types of methods that people might not hear about as much.
0: Sure, please um, do.
1: So, what you probably usually think of in terms of SETI is the searches for radio signals, and that is a big part of what's happening, particularly with the uh, really big Breakthrough Listen program. But there's a lot of other searches going on too. For example, optical lasers, um, kind of as an alternative communication method to radio, um, are something that people are searching for.
0: So how how does that work? Because when I think of optical lasers, I think, okay, great, you've got these electron transitions that occur in a specific configuration. They're always of the same wavelength, so they produce monochromatic light. But also, if you send that signal throughout the universe, it's going to be subject to two factors. One is going to be both thermal and kinetic line broadening, so you're not going to see that monochromatic peak the way you, you're used to. And the other is it's going to get attenuated by everything in the interstellar medium. So would we actually be able to say oh, that was a coherent laser when it was emitted versus, oh, yeah, that's that's some emission line that, uh, you know, it just looks like any other emission line out there. Um, How how would we be able to distinguish that to say, yeah, optical laser, that's a way to do it. What are we going to look for that will tell us this is an intelligent signal?
1: What people look for in optical lasers is that you have a very thin signal in terms of wavelength, so you don't have the sort of natural broadening that happens um, from other natural emitters out there. If you have a laser, you can have it very, very small uh, bandwidth in terms of your wavelength, Um, so that would indicate that something is artificial.
0: Okay, okay. So it is it is the wavelength range and you would be able to emit that very narrowly so that even by the time it arrived, uh you would wind up with saying, "Oh no, like I can absolutely tell like that is a that is not a naturally generated signal. Uh no narrow band emission line is going to mimic this. No natural laser, I believe the natural ones are all in the microwave spectrum. Are going to emit that so you could look at that and say this has to be produced by someone who at least knows the physics of a laser
1: yeah exactly well
0: that's pretty interesting what what else can we look for so there's there's optical lasers I've heard that some people are looking for extremely uh, sort of high frequency emissions looking in even the x-ray or the gamma-ray part of the spectrum
1: um, yeah. So I am aware that there's research being done on that, but it's it's not something that's done a lot, and it's honestly not something I know a lot of details about.
0: Okay. Okay. What other methods do you like that you're that you're aware of?
1: Um, yeah. So if we return to things like Dyson spheres, we will be looking in the infrared um, for what we would call waste heat so if you have technology surrounding a star that is collecting the star's energy it'll gather it put it towards some sort of technological use maybe computation and then it's going to have to re-emit that energy thermally um in the form most likely of infrared light so we can look for stars that have um you know an anomalous amount of infrared light coming off them And then say, well, that could maybe be explained by a Dyson swarm covering some fraction of it.
0: So, would that be like basically saying, look, I know how stars emit light. And if this is a star of this age and this mass and this temperature, then it should have this spectrum to it. Like it should have this. Uh, spectral energy distribution or if I'm thinking more simply like look our Sun when we look at it we know it's not a perfect black body it's better approximated by a series of black bodies at different temperatures that go from the very outer part of the photosphere down a few I think it's a few hundred or a few thousand kilometers uh, into the star where you have layers where it gets hotter and that light still gets out so you can say okay well for stars I know what that spectrum should look like I know how much energy there should be at all these different wavelengths and if you then see extra energy that comes in at an infrared wavelength uh is that sort of that indication that would tell you actually there's there's something else other than the star there there's something else that's absorbing a fraction of the star's energy and re-emitting that fraction of the star's energy at these longer wavelengths and lower temperatures is that is that basically what you're doing
1: yep exactly cool um, I should mention here that there are natural things. Like if you've got a really young star and it's got a bunch of um, gas or a disk around it, this can also create, um, the, this will also result in the re emission thermally of some of that star's light. So there are definitely natural confounders here to consider.
0: Yeah, it sounds like what you're really looking for then is not one uh, smoking gun. Signal, uh, although a smoking gun signal is like you know obviously interesting for a number of reasons. It sounds like what you're what you're looking for is like mm, we really want to see this combination of factors around a star like for example uh if we wanted to look for this infrared infrared emission we would also look and make sure that the star was dust free and not in this phase where it still had a protoplanetary disk around it uh we could look for something like um you know a A radio signal of a specific pattern but we want to make sure or these flux dippings things with a particular pattern uh, but we want to make sure that it doesn't have this sort of like frequency dependent dips which would indicate it's not a swarm but rather it's it's a dusty area so it sounds like uh, you actually need to look at multiple things together to rule out the mundane astrophysical explanation and leave yourself with a it's likely or it's likelier that it is the result of some sort of deliberate intervention on the behalf of, you know, some sort of intelligent civilization.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's that's a fair characterization.
1: Yes. I did additionally have one more sort of techno signature that um, I know a lot of work is being done on right now which is to look for atmospheric technosignatures. Um, So for example, people have been talking for a while about looking for atmospheric biosignatures. So this is, you know, when we study the atmosphere of a planet, can we detect things like oxygen? And like you mentioned before, maybe phosphine um, and all of that. And then you can also look for certain um, chemical signals in atmospheres that would indicate the presence of technology. Um, And I know a lot of work is being done on this right now to see what sort of levels of these things would be required in order for us to um, actually be able to detect these things with uh, James Webb Space Telescope, which has just been launched
0: so when you say techno signatures in the atmosphere i immediately go to like the 1980s in white rain hairspray and i say oh yeah you just look for like chlorofluorocarbons in their atmosphere and if you find that then you know that they've reached the synthesizer era and yep they're just all styling their hair with these chemicals that are destroying their planet's ozone layer Is that what you mean by a technosignature is like a complex molecule that would only be generated by a species that had a knowledge of chemistry sufficient enough to synthesize certain chemical compounds?
1: Yeah, CFCs are a big example of something people have talked about on this subject. Now, CFCs, um, as we know, were really bad for Earth and they um, were banned. Uh, so that's not necessarily something we would expect to find a lot, because when we think about how briefly we had those chemicals in Earth's atmosphere, what are the chances we're going to happen to catch some other civilization during their CFC phase?
0: Wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you here, but I did recently watch the film Don't Look Up. And are you telling me that the general assumptions is that aliens, unlike humans, are averse to destroying their own planet
1: well i suppose i can't necessarily say that they're against it but if we're interested in contact with any sort of other civilization we're gonna have to find one that's not too self-destructive
0: <laughs> okay that that's fair I'll, I'll let you off the hook with that answer Um, But that's that's pretty interesting. What other sort of techno signatures then would we look for? Like CFCs are one of them. And okay, for some reasons, we might expect that that's not the best techno signature. But would we, for instance, look at a civilization that was in the process of adding a tremendous amount of CO2 to their atmosphere? Or again, is that something that we assume uh, much like I don't know? radio, that's going to be a transient phase in a civilization's emergence. Um, and are there things that we would look for as uh, maybe more likely, more sustainable and more large, um, you know, techno signatures than, than sort of trace compounds or these rare uh, signals that maybe would only last for a few decades or centuries at most?
1: Um. Yeah, this is definitely still a very active area of research. Um, one other recent study that I'm aware of has explored the idea of nitrogen dioxide, so NO2 gas, which is produced on Earth from the burning of fossil fuels. Um, and this is something, you know, that has been around on Earth, I would say, for more long than CFCs. You know, fossil fuel burning has been happening for a while and still is. But ultimately, we know again, that the fossil fuel burning is not ultimately sustainable for a super long amount of time. So that's kind of one of the difficulties here is that coming up with atmospheric technosignatures can be really difficult because there are natural processes that create things like CO2 and methane, which can also be byproducts of technology. so I would say it's definitely still a very active area of research and something to keep an eye on, especially as JWST is going to start studying uh, planets' atmospheres in more depth than we've ever been able to before.
0: I mean, that that's something that I'm excited about. I know James Webb is going to be able to do two things that better than any observatory today can do. And one of them is what we call transit spectroscopy, where when a planet with an atmosphere transits in front of its parent star. Yeah, the part that hits the hard disk of the planet or the hard, you know, spherical core of the planet, uh, that's not going to get transmitted through. But just like we see the moon turn red during an eclipse, during a lunar eclipse, because sunlight filters through the Earth's atmosphere and lands on the moon, well, that filtered starlight is going to come through a planet's atmosphere and go to the James Webb Space Telescope. And James Webb will be able to see what sort of gases are in that planet's atmosphere from the absorption lines, from whatever starlight gets absorbed by the atmosphere. The other thing Webb will be able to do is to look at Uh, planets that it can take direct images of because it has a coronagraph. So if it can block out the parent star's light and view a planet directly, it can take just a spectrum of that planet and potentially discover all sorts of things about that planet, including what's in its atmosphere. And maybe if it can even resolve things like the color of the planet and monitor it over time, it can start to find like, ooh, Does it have continents and oceans? Does it have cloud cover and what are the clouds made out of? Does it have uh, seasons? Does it have ice caps that grow and shrink? Does it have... continents that green and brown with the seasons. Uh, These are the sorts of things that Webb will actually be capable of, not necessarily for Earth-sized planets around sun-like stars, but possibly for Earth-sized planets around some stars. Uh, And that sort of thing uh, makes me think, wow, if it detects anything compelling around Proxima Centauri or a trappist one planet or you know anywhere in the nearby universe uh you know not only is humanity rightfully going to go nuts but the seti community will as well uh looking for anything that's potentially um not usual coming from those planets
1: yeah absolutely JWST is so exciting for astrobiologists especially because you know it really presents such a great opportunity to find these atmospheric uh, biosignatures as well as techno signatures for the study community and i think one of the difficult things we're going to be dealing with here is that a lot of times when you're doing things like transit spectroscopy the issue kind of comes up like came up with phosphine on venus where you know, you can see that it looks like we've made a detection, but then there's questioning, like, have we actually and does this actually mean life? And uh, while this is really exciting, I think there's also going to be a lot of uncertainty and a lot of academic arguments over these sorts of detections in the coming years.
0: Yeah, well, I'm sure you won't make some of the specific mistakes that were made in the phosphine on Venus paper, uh, such as I, I'm sure you won't use an absurdly high order polynomial fit to your data. And I'm sure you won't, um, you know, claim to have detected an unresolved line when you don't have sufficient resolution to resolve the line that you're claiming to detect, um, which to me were the two big errors with the phosphine on Venus paper. But you know, I'm I'm also a little bit uh, sour on that particular result that came out. It's always a risk when you're making a measurement that's kind of at the margins of what you can detect. And you use methods that are not generally used for that type of study to extract a signal from that study. Um, And so, you know, look, there's no shortage of ways that are out there for us to fool ourselves. But one of the things that I worry about, and I'm sure you worry about, is um, what about the ways that we fool ourselves that we're not even aware that we're fooling ourselves um and i fully expect that over the lifetime of james webb which i'm optimistic is going to approach 20 years of science operations after this unprecedented success of the Ariane 5 launch um I fully expect that there will be a number of dubious claims saying, hey, you know what? We found this thing that looks like a biosignature. We found this thing that looks like a bio hint. We found this thing that looks like an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere, right? I have a feeling we're going to see a lot of claims that we found something uh, that really only amounts to wishful thinking and, you know, massaging the data to get the wishfully thought signal out of it uh and i fear that uh not as a scientist i fear that as a science communicator that that this is going to uh really erode the public confidence in science um and i was wondering if you had any thoughts about that
1: i would say i optimistically um, like to have faith in, you know, scientists working on teams, checking each other, uh, science having to go through the peer review process before it'll get published in a journal. Um, you know, I think that can... That's a very important process and that hopefully it's going to catch most of these cases here if we have any wishful thinking going on. But the fact is that we are going to be looking at things just barely on the edge of detectability. So we might have things that appear in some uh, transit spectroscopy study that it turns out um, there was actually an error involved or, you know, the signal wasn't actually quite as significant as we thought it was. Um, So I would say, yeah, when we're working right on the edge of detectability like this, there's always that sort of danger.
0: Yeah, I would... um... It's nice that you have faith that the scientific process will keep us from making those initial claims. I, I have no such faith in that. I think that that the scientific process will help us get it right in the end. Uh, but but I expect, uh, well, I'll just I'll just go out on a limb and say I expect at least uh, one claim every two years uh, of some sort of spectacular but dubious detection. Uh, And I expect many of those to happen before one holds up. And I'm not sure that one will hold up with James Webb, but, you know, you got to look because this is one of those things where, yeah, there's the risk that you will spend your whole career working on this and find nothing, but there's the reward that you're looking, you're looking for something that only very few people are looking for. And if you find something that's real, uh, this is going to change the course of human civilization. Uh, And I'm curious if that possibility uh, is what really gets you excited about working on this.
1: I do think it's very exciting. You know, uh, the biosignatures and transit spectroscopy is not something that I really work on. But in terms of other, other study things I work on, I think it's really exciting and also kind of terrifying. (laughs) Um, I was talking with a friend the other day who was telling me that, um, you know, she wouldn't want to be one of the authors on a major study paper that found something because of all of the media attention and what if it's wrong and just, you know, something that has such a strong impact on humanity is, scary to be involved in um and you know i would say maybe that's kind of one of the things for me where a lot of my study work has been more theoretical where i'm exploring what techno signatures might look like rather than actually trying to find them so i don't i'm not put up to quite that pressure that some people are where they have to announce we have found signs of extraterrestrial life where we haven't
0: so you're, you're really in the stage right now of sort of looking at like, okay, like if this sort of intelligent alien civilization exists um what are some ways they could contact us what are some ways they could attempt to make contact or what are some things that their activities could you know reveal their presence to us uh and that's sort of the work you're doing so are you sort of saying that if you if you get something wrong the stakes are a little bit lower than going out and announcing to the whole world we found aliens uh that that if you're wrong, the consequences aren't as dire as if you went and made a dubious positive detection claim.
1: Yeah, I would say that is definitely true. Um, I would say I'm not fully like steering away from the actual observational study work for that reason. But it is something I've thought about as the whole BLC1 scenario has happened. Um, the first author on that work was my friend, Dr. Sophia Sheikh, who recently graduated from Penn State. And I just I know what she was put through with the media and everything after the result was somehow leaked. And, you know, it is kind of daunting.
0: <laughs> you know, I I I think there are. Unfortunately, uh, a number of times that uh, an early career scientist is sort of put into the uh, path of an oncoming train through no fault of their own. And uh, I'm I'm always happy when an early career researcher can survive something like that happening to them, uh, where it's not their fault, but they're the ones who have to live with the consequences of it. Um, is there... This is a big question that I don't expect you'll have an answer to, but is there a way you'd like to see either science or science and, their, and the scientist's relationship with the media a uh, change for the better? Is there, is there something you can sort of point to and say, you know, this is the way things are now, but I'd really like to see this be the way things become in the future.
1: Yeah, I would say it's an important issue we need to think about. I don't necessarily have all the answers to work out, but I just think one of the biggest things is just communication between scientists and the media. You know, astronomers need to know how to talk to people who aren't experts on what they work on. And then members of the media, um, and I know many are very good about this, but there are clearly some out there who aren't, need to you know be be cautious in announcing things like the discovery of alien megastructures when we're not really claiming that that's what we've found
0: yeah i mean you know i guess it's all a learning experience but also I think you you have really emphasized an important aspect of this, which is that, look, despite the fact that maybe there are a few, not most, but a few bad actors in the science community, uh, maybe there are a few people making claims uh, for attention that aren't Uh, fully substantiated by the data, and maybe there are people doing, you know, the classic thing of fooling themselves without, you know, intending to. But despite all of that, science is this self-correcting process. Science does have a large community of, on the whole, extremely careful and scrupulous individuals, and, you know, a claim that doesn't hold up to scrutiny isn't going to last for very long like it's not going to fool people for very long before the rest of the community is on to them and catches on and says no here's how you do it correctly so even if you're pessimistic about you know everyone getting everything right the first time uh you should be optimistic that uh science will Get it right in the end, and before too long, at that. Uh, would you would you think that's a that's a fair sentiment to communicate?
1: Yeah, definitely. And when we're talking about SETI, you know, for as many astronomers out there as there are working on SETI, there are so many more who are ready to disprove any SETI detection. And I think that's a great thing because you know we really need to have our results validated and. Having other scientists look over each other's work from a new and independent perspective is so essential.
0: Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. I think that the greater diversity you have in a field in all areas of the field, Uh, and I mean that in terms of diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of uh, toolkits that different people bring to the table, diversity of educational backgrounds, um, as well as a diversity of race, gender, and sexual orientation, and, you know, all the other metrics that you can imagine having a diversity of uh, are important because, you know, if everyone is like us and everyone has the same education as us and everyone has the same background as us, uh, it's pretty hard to make sure you aren't omitting something. It's pretty hard to make sure that, you know, that what you're bringing to the table is the best of all there is to be brought to the table. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's important to approach a complex problem like this in as many robust and sound ways as possible. Um, and and it sounds like you th- see things uh, the exact same way.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, Macy, I want to thank you for a really fun and far-ranging discussion where we, we started with brown dwarfs and exoplanets and we wound up talking about the search for intelligent life in the universe. Um, are there any final thoughts you would like to leave our listeners with before we wrap things up? Is there anything that you want people to come away and if there's one thing they're going to think about, what should they come away with
1: okay i would say i have two main points kind of based on two different portions of the discussion one is that the area of microlensing as a planet and brown dwarf detection method um has a lot of promise for revealing areas of parameter space in terms of brown dwarfs and planets and you know the relationships between planets and their stars um the microlensing method and especially the upcoming roman space telescope are just incredibly value and valuable in expanding what we know about these areas and um i'm so excited for that to happen um and then on the other side of things i would want people to be really cautious when you read things in the media about alien life being detected because A lot of times, as study researchers, we see something interesting and, you know, we'll note in a paper or something that this is interesting and could be artificial, but there's always so much more work that needs to be done in order to actually confirm that something is aliens before we really know for sure and are ready for all of humanity to know.
0: Well, thank you for that. That's, that's wonderful. And yeah, important message for everyone out there. Just because a scientist, even a SETI scientist, notes that it could be aliens, doesn't mean that aliens is the most likely explanation. And in fact, you're likely not going to hear anyone scrupulous saying it is aliens until and unless we've really got some overwhelming evidence that it can't be something natural or mundane. Uh, And that's an important reminder for us to take with us everywhere we go. Macy, I want to thank you for being my guest, and I want to thank all of you out there for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above to our Starts With a Bang Patreon. Thanks go to... Ryan Kinsella, Chad Marlar, Samir Kumar, Rob Hansen, Tim Graham, Frank, John Methot, Aaron Weiss, Sean Foley, Sea Green Mango, Matt Conroe, Pete Smoyer, Chris Chakutas, William Blair, Stefan Bernager, Pierre Franson, John Van Baligulian, Dominic Turpin, Punitive Expedition, Pedro Texera, Rick Baker, Matt Glasser, Kilio Opu, David Charney, Andy and Wall, George Churse, Vlad Pashkovsky, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Randall Slimak, Jerry Wilterding, Flo, John Kozura, Mark Armstrong. Marcelo Barnaba, Rafal Wojcicki, Brian Terry, Danny, Patrick Dennis, Denier, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Bob Shire, George Jeff Boutel, Casey Haskins, Stuart Lending, Michael Hall, Tommy White, David Hibbets, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings Dan Steelen, Dwayne Williams, Andres Chovanec, Bob Unger, Youngko S., Philip Francis, William Vanden Heuvel, David Wolfe, Neil Flood, James Bryson Hyatt, Adam Robinson, Paul Lester, Gabrielle Nadair, Sam Cerzakian, Jeff Renike, Tina Tallon, Rousheen Shaw, Lockwood Carlson, Alan Parikh, Jason Luttrell, Paulina Barron, Dick Pills, Adrian Griffiths, Mark Langston. Arnulfo Zepeda, Hellbender, Tom Van Scotter, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Steve Schaber, Fraser Kane, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Rich Weigel, James Nance, Tomas Walgren, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Ben Head, David Tascioni, Radek Nesbida, Javier Zazo, and Brainwise. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and I'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang.